0: Uh, and, and this being a sermon series on culture, I want to talk about how that lie has been institutionalized in our culture, about how it works itself through our culture so that we can be smart, wise people and kind of look at our culture with the perspective of godly economic freedom and not sort of fall into the traps uh, that society has, uh, has laid down for us. Uh, is that clear? I think it is probably clear, clear to you that that you got to work hard for the money, baby. How, how many of you are, are working hard for the money? Oh, yeah. you got to work hard for the money. Some of you are probably working for the man. How many, how many of you are working hard for the man for your money? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And, and I think in some respect, life is designed this way. I mean, there, there's something about the structure of life that means you have to work hard for the money, uh, this was Adam's curse, right, when humankind fell in the Garden of Eden. However you understand that story, uh, God's corrective curse to Adam was, look, maybe it's, been, maybe it's been a little easy for you. Maybe you haven't had to exercise that trust muscle enough. So I'm going to tell you what, Adam, from now on, things aren't going to come easily to you. You're going to have to work for it. It's by the sweat of your brow that the ground will produce food for you. You're going to have to get up and go to work. And God said that because He wanted it to be helpful. He wanted it to be an arena in which we learn to trust God. But nevertheless, there was some hard work promised uh, to uh, humanity. And as I said earlier, I think economics are a big deal in life. You spend a lot of time every week just getting by and paying the bills. Am I right? Uh, Your need to pay the bills makes you uh, go to work doing things maybe that you don't want to do, that you don't necessarily enjoy doing day to day. Yes? No? Uh, and, and your, your job, uh, the way that you experience provision uh, in the world, affects lots of stuff about you. That's why economics are a big deal. So let's, uh, let's warm up uh, because you're a little shell-shocked. Uh, and you're thinking about all those bills that you have to pay. Uh, so, so I turn to the person. I want you to discuss a question. Here's the question I want you to discuss. Worst job you ever had. Worst job you ever had. Worst job you ever had. If you've never had a job, God bless you. God bless you. Just commiserate. Worst job you ever had. Dirty job, boring job. All right, all right, all right, come back together, come back together, come back together. You know, almost every week I ask a warm-up question and I see a lot of confused faces and some hesitancy. This week I ask, well, what's the worst job you ever had? And everybody automatically started talking. So, uh, and, and you won't shut up. Look, Jesus is back. Nothing. Nothing. All right, uh, worst job you ever had. Who, 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 has, who has a terrible job to share? Worst job you ever had? Who wants to share? Mayor. The job I just left. The sales job you just left. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, how many, for how many people is that true? Either the worst job you ever had is the job you just left or the job you're thinking hard about leaving. How, how many, that is true, yeah, all right, witness. Who's got another one? A a really good one to make everybody else feel better. Anybody? Pressure washing houses in Texas summer. Pressure washing houses during a Texas summer. Yeah, okay. Yeah? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Yeah. All right. Who's got a better one? Or a worse one, as the case may be? Bricks of lead? working with bricks of lead in the rain? Don't don't ask why. Oh, but we must. We must know. Working with bricks of lead in the rain. All right, well, we're gonna pray for you after service. All right, yeah, one more, one more. Dishwashing at seed seed restaurant. Yeah, I, I, I did that job. Yeah, that job—that job, that job sucked, but we, but we did it for love, didn't we? Yeah, everybody's everybody's got a bad job story. Everybody's sort of experienced that—that um, that fact of life, right? That fact of life. And there's something about that fact of life that is universal. It's meant to be good for us. I think uh, we can laugh about it now. Uh, but at the time, we are doing those crappy jobs. We're doing them perhaps because we just need the money, man. It's because things are serious. And that's, that's a driver in life. That's a characterizer of life. Uh, and it's something that, that everybody needs to appreciate. And those of us who have a message of hope to the world need to appreciate it perhaps more than most. I think the, the great lie in economics may be one of the big great lives in life is that things are scarce, that life equals scarcity, you know? And I say, it, I say it's a lie uh, because we have a God who's promised uh, to provide, right? Do not worry. Do not be anxious for anything Jesus commands us in his most famous sermon. Uh, your, father, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He provides for the sparrows. He dresses the lilies of the field. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. Um, But I think perhaps the majority of humans on earth believes that there's just not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough to go around, maybe fundamentally or maybe because somebody has stolen most of it, and therefore there's not enough for you, and therefore you have to scratch and claw, and be afraid, and take control. And I think that's probably the world's philosophy on economics, scratch and claw, be afraid, and dang it, take control. Somehow, take control. Jesus says, you know, don't stress about tomorrow. Uh, But the economic culture of the earth says, oh no, take control, secure tomorrow dot, 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 by any means necessary. And it's how we do that. It's how we try to take control that can get us uh, in, in a lot of trouble. My dad was the hardest working guy I, I've, I've ever known. A super hardworking guy. He kind of grew up, I think, in a culture of scarcity in a working class uh, family. And, and, and the philosophy he settled on was just work your butt off and try to get ahead save, uh, be frugal. I have distinct memories of of, uh, him uh, sitting me down uh, and and talking about uh, his view of economics. My dad never talked to me about anything, you know, in life. Like we never had the talk. We never talked about stuff that was going on in our lives, but we would talk about money. We would talk about economics because that was a big deal uh, to him like I say, very virtuous guy instead of being hard he was even sort of, he had, he had a generous streak to him, but I remember him explaining to me one day, we went for a drive and he said, uh, you know, son, uh, in this world, there are the haves and there are the have-nots. And uh, we work very hard to be right on the top of the have-nots. That's, that's our position in the world. That's what he said to me. Uh, and pretty soon, the, the stuff is going to hit the fan. He may have used more colorful language. Uh, and, you know, and people, people are just going to fight as they often do. And, and you need to have yours. You need to secure your place. And I just want you to know how the world works. The way that worked out practically in our lives is because my dad uh, and, and, his, and my stepmom, uh, he, uh, he remarried uh, when I was uh, a child. Um, very hardworking, extremely frugal people, Um, we had enough in my family, you know, surprisingly enough. They did amazingly well for working-class people, Um, but there was always a spirit of of not having enough around my house. You know, so I call it, in retrospect, plenty with poverty. (laughs) That's how it felt. Anybody relate to that? Uh, And I think that is a, a culture that can descend upon us. Like, objectively speaking, you actually have enough. Objectively speaking, you can get by. Objectively speaking, you know, we hear this a lot, compared to the rest of the world, you're actually quite rich. But man, do you feel poor? Man, do you feel worried and scared about finances? Be careful. Scratch, claw, be anxious, and take control, you know? Uh, The idea that uh, the economy is doomed is a big idea, I think, in our economic culture. The game is rigged, and the only way we get, uh, the only way to get yours is to seize power somehow or to make sure that the people you're allied with seize power somehow. And, and that's going to be political power. You know, the economy is crazy. The economy is doomed. So what we need to do is to make sure that our camp has political power so that everybody gets enough on our side at least. I, I, I think that, that culture is out there. Uh, when I say seize political control, what I mean is, well, government has to take control, and, and mostly our agents in government has to take control to protect us from economic chaos and, and all of those greedy SOBs that really take more than they, they deserve and, 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 you know, rig the system. We hear a lot, Am I crazy or do we hear a lot of that talk in the, in the political popular discourse in our culture today? I don't know, turn on the news. I think we get a lot of this. We just, we just had a presidential election that was between a, a very big government liberal on one side and a, and a populist power to the little guy on the other side. You know, it, this economic fear was a big part. Uh, of that election. It's dominating, I think, our, our discourse. And as I said, you know, last week, maybe the last couple of weeks, we've talked about social justice and, and political culture. What happens is that, that, that government wants to grow. You know, we govern ourselves in society and, and, and people who work for the government, who run the government, uh, they, they eventually have an interest in being those people who control government, they become government agents and they do things to expand their influence because that makes them secure. Government naturally wants to grow. It naturally wants to get big. It naturally wants to take control of things. And one of the things that, that governors want to control is economy. They want to intervene and that's very easy to sell because they say, look, if we don't control the economy, you're going to get screwed. You're, got, you're not going to have enough. You better give us power or somebody will take, take your money. Somebody will take provision from you. Somebody will take your future from you. Trust us to control things. And control of the economy becomes, you know, political competition. And all of the most oppressive governments in the world became big and oppressive because of social justice. They said, trust us to take control and we will make sure that society is just as a result. You may remember, I, I read that quote from, from Hitler, is that the, the inner health of any society is based on social justice for the people. Slogan of the Nazi party, you know. Uh, but, but justice for whom and justice for how. Like Everybody thinks they're doing social justice, even people that end up being incredibly murderous. That's, that's how it, it's justified. And so I think, you know, you want to approach that with a little skepticism, you know. The classic big governments. You you may I don't know if people study this anymore, but do you remember Mark, Marxism, right? I mean, when I was a kid, through half of my life, it dominated an incredibly large portion of the gro- of the of the globe, and it and it was genocidal, you know, a hundred million corpses in Europe alone uh, because of because of Marxism, because of socialist governments, and uh, man, how 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 fast we forget. But anyway, Marxism was a social justice philosophy. You know, Marx said, look, uh, capitalism carries the seeds of its own destruction. What happens is that the owners of capital alienate the workers. It's us versus them. It's the bourgeois versus the proletariat. And you know what? It's, it's blood and guts. This, this is a war that you cannot fail to lose, he told people. Therefore, it justifies the proletariat, the little guy taking control by force, by murder, taking control of the government. And, and because, because the economics are so volatile, that government has to be a dictatorship. It has to control everything. And of course, once a certain group of people control everything, what's going to happen? Unless those people are really, really, really godly, it's not going to go well. And every Marxist government in the world, you know, it became like literally genocidal, murderous, just killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people indiscriminately fascism uh, Which many people think the opposite of Marxism same justification? Same justification like you know fascism means to come together the she to, to collect um, Which is a great idea in theory, you know, but Mussolini Hitler, you know didn't end well uh, for, for those guys more mildly, uh, you know, in, in the West and in, uh, in this country, we've talked about the military-industrial complex. Anybody remember that phrase? People will not talk about this. Anymore. Really, like three of us. That was a really big deal, like in the 70s and 80s. And there's like this cabal of very, very rich white men who control everything. And uh, and they're going to screw you, uh, and steal your future, uh, if you if you give them a chance. And, and, you know, all of these things, I think, you know, have grains of truth in them, of course. But, but they're also sort of preaching a version of the world that is scarce and dangerous. A world in which you have to scratch and claw and be afraid and take control by whatever means necessary, uh, if, if you believe it. I consider all of those cultural dialogues to be very dangerous dialogues. You know, they tell you, if you want things to work out, man, you better put someone in control. And who gets to be in control? Well, that's a dangerous question. That's a dangerous question. I wouldn't even want to be in control. So, you know, I'm just saying all those things to kind of characterize the political economic discourse that's out there. And and to kind of pose, you know, a question to us. And it's it's kind of an economic question, it's kind of a political question. On the face of it, it's not really a spiritual question but it affects a lot of things in life. It affects how people see the world. And the question is, well, do you want a controlled economy? Do you want an economy that someone's trying to control? Or do you want one of those crazy, freewheeling, free market economies where people are just kind of allowed to run businesses and to do trade anywhere they want, to cross borders and, and, you know, to hire anyone? What kind of economy do you want? What kind of economy do you think is most just? Controlled economy? Freewheeling, free market economy? Shall we vote? Because that's kind of what we're doing in America. All right, let's vote. How many want a controlled economy? How many want a free-wheeling free market economy? Right, so just like America, almost nobody participates in the political process. Well, it's contentious, Uh, yeah. All right, so some some facts, Uh, just some facts. Uh, It's good to be anchored in the truth. And some of these I talked about, you know, last week. Um, And uh, stick with me to the end, uh, because there are facts and there are counter facts. Uh, But I just want us to be equipped to talk about what is a very important cultural dialogue, okay? Um, Capitalism. Uh, which is an economic system whereby people accumulate a bunch of capital, a bunch of money in order to build giant enterprises. So it's not like, you know, the small surf farmer. It's like, put together a lot of money and you can build big companies that go international and and you can have a Walmart and stuff like that. Capitalism means to accumulate capital and to build big enterprises. Uh, And capitalism was kind of invented in the 19th century um, in the 19th century, at the time, was, uh, capitalism was invented, pardon me for speaking simplistically if you study these things, uh, somewhere around 3 or 4% of the global population was not poor, was not living in abject, absolute poverty. So, you know, under 5% of people had enough, essentially. Uh, as late as 1895 in the western world which is the richest part of the world only five percent of people lived on more than a dollar a day and as capitalism has grown and deepened and spread the world has just leapt out of poverty into prosperity like it, it is it is probably uh probably the most transformative uh social revolution in in world history you know it's either capitalism or Free government, democracy, depending on how you think of it. And they have often gone together. Um, Capitalism has done more for the poor than any force uh, in history. And, you know, I have to admit, it's done far more to alleviate poverty than the church has. You know, the church just hasn't had that much. It's not a system in that way. You know, it's more a moral culture. Um, Since uh, I quoted this last week, I believe, since... uh, the 1980s, as long about the past 25, uh, 30 years, China, which was which was very communist and controlled in its economy, in the 1980s they switched to a capitalist form of economy, and since that switch, just just since that switch, they have taken 600 million Chinese people out of poverty, um, just because they let the free market do do its job, so to speak. Uh, capitalism has been an incredible boon to the poor. Um, Historically, this isn't even a little bit controversial. Like, you know, everybody who studies this knows this. But people worry, though, that nevertheless, capitalism has some excesses, and what happens is that not everybody wins equally in free market capitalist systems, which is which is true enough. Everybody everybody gets better off, but not everybody um, benefits equally. And of course, a capitalist system does not prevent some humans from oppressing other humans, right? Uh, it doesn't guarantee that everybody who has money or resources will be kind to those people who are weaker. You know, so we definitely get tales of, of oppression. But generally speaking, oppression has lessened wherever capitalism has grown, and poverty has lessened dramatically wherever Capitalism has grown on average Uh, in this country. We're very suspicious against capitalism right now You know, we've got this top 1% versus the other 99% And you know like there's no mobility if you're born poor you're gonna stay poor and something like that And then some people actually took a look at that. I read some of these stats last week Uh, uh, 12% of the US population uh, In the course of their lives will be in the top 1% at some point point. So the thing is, there is no top 1%. What there is is a top, you know, 12% that kind of floats in and out of the 1% depending. As it works out, the older you are in America, the more money you tend to have. And so it's age-related. When you're 30, perhaps you won't be in the top 1%, but when you're 55 or 60, you will be. And then as your retirement dwindles out, maybe you'll fall out of the top 1%. That's the reality of the situation. Crazy billionaires aside, because there aren't too many of them, just on average, 12% of you will be in the top 1% at some point. Some of you are in the top 1% right now. And that's just the top 1% of America. Many of us are in the top 1% of global uh, wealth, right? So I think that's fairly good news. 12% of you will be in the top 1%. That's, that's a lot of mobility and fluidity, but it gets better. 39% of Americans will spend a year in the top 5%. So almost 40% of you will be in the top 5% at one, at one time. Pump your fists. Yes. We. We, we, got, we got some coin, um, 56% of, of us will be in the top 10% uh, of American wealth, so well, well over half of us, and a whopping 73% will spend a year in the top fifth. So 73% of us, three quarters of us at one point or another, will get to be in the top quarter uh, at some point in our lives. So there's a ton, a ton of financial mobility uh, in America a ton. The wealthiest households in America, on average, are not, are not like you know, the white households. The wealthiest households in America are actually the Asian ones, and Asians are among our more recent uh, immigrant groups in, in the country, which just tells you uh, that you know, there's a lot of mobility in America. Uh, it works premen- tremendously well. Opportunity prevails, on average. There are always exceptions to every rule. Uh, but don't you need a fair degree of, of, of careful control? You know, that being said, don't we, ne- don't we, don't we need to keep a close watch uh, and regulate to make sure that things don't go wrong? And, you know, I'm running out of time, so I'll, you know, I'll just share this stat. Every year, uh, a group called the Heritage uh, Foundation does an examination of what they call economic freedom in countries around the world. And what they do is that they rate every country on Earth in terms of how much it regulates its economy and trade. Right? So how many regulatory laws do they have? How many, how many social welfare laws do they have? Uh, how much do they restrict trade and try to shape trade? What do they do for unemployed workers and stuff like that? Uh, and the most unregulated economies they call free, no bias there. And uh, and then the most heavily regulated, controlled socialist economies they call not free. No bias there. But free and free and not free. So let's regulate. So so here's how it goes. I think we have I think we have a slide. On on the left are the most free, like the least regulated economies on earth. And on the right are the most regulated economies on earth. And and what I did just for just for convenience sake, as I just pick the, the top 15 most free and, and then the, the 15 least free or most regulated economies on Earth. What do you notice? United States, if you're interested, would be number 17 on uh, most free. So more free than most, but not among the top of the top. What do you notice about the list? You don't need to be a political scientist The, country, the countries on the left have yeah, peace and prosperity and the countries on the right do not like the least regulated your economy is the richer your people are The least regulated your economy is the richer your people are and and that's that's a rule that is is pretty much not not violated uh, year after year after year after year. Uh, the U.S. evidently used uh, used to be in, in the, among the most free of the most free. And every year for the last nine years, uh, we've descended. We've gotten less free and less free. Until this past year with the Trump election, we suddenly became, our, our slide was halted. But Trump just introduced a trade tariff, so I think, I think, we're, I think we're back down again. Uh, so, like... Um, Hong Kong is called an economic miracle because not so very long ago, I mean, just, you know, within several decades, it was incredibly poor. Uh, and then, you know, all controls were taken off and everybody was just allowed to do whatever they wanted to in terms of trade or business. And, and they call it an economic miracle because per capita now it's become one of the most richest places on earth. Um, and so that's just kind of the statistical reality of the situation. The free market uh, is, is actually pretty good for people. Uh, In in, in fact, uh, economies that are rated free or mostly free, which is like, you know, the top 40 or something like that of least regulated countries, uh, economies that are rated free or mostly free, enjoy per capita incomes more than double the average of all the other countries and five times higher than the incomes of heavily regulated economy, five times the income per capita. So, I mean, it's, it's not like the data are unclear on this. Um, a lot of people talk about the Scandinavian countries who are supposedly socialist. But look at Switzerland, you know. It's a, company, uh, a country that sometimes called, is called socialist because they have a fairly big government. But economically, they don't regulate much at all. In fact, they have a fairly unregulated banking system, you might, you might recall, um, which, which uh, yeah. Um, so, so that's, a, that's a myth actually economically they're quite free and so the, the freer you are the, the, better, the better you do the better your people uh, do and so that's just kind of, kind of the truth of the situation I'm not trying to preach anything I'm just saying I'm, I'm talking about this because I'm trying to counter a lie that life is, is scarce it's like you know actually on balance the news is pretty good you know and we don't necessarily need some sort of maestro in control. Uh, maybe, maybe other things uh, will work out. You know, people make a big deal about economic disasters like the Great Depression and the recent economic collapse, 2008, 2009 economic collapse. Um, uh, and I won't talk about those. But uh, scholars who look into this stuff will often tell you that well, the reason the, the reason for the collapse actually wasn't the economy, but the government role in the economy for. For example, during the Great Depression, money supply shrunk by a third uh, in America, and, and, and even more so throughout the West. Meaning, uh, due to the somewhat to the stock market collapse, and there was a drought in America, but largely due to the the policy of our national bank called the Federal Reserve, it it took money out of the economy. Uh, for some cr- crazy thinking, and just. What that did is it made prices fall, and industry dry up. A lot of people will tell you these days that without government intervention, the Great Depression would have merely been a depression. Uh, and, and I could tell you a very complicated story about the recent economic collapse, where people relied on regulators to do their job in the stock market, particularly with something called credit default swaps, and regulators did not do their job. They were fraudulent, and that caused the economy uh, to collapse. So. You get sort of a double whammy there. You know, the government gets involved and said, "We will take control. Trust us." And then, if you do, it goes badly. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not preaching anything, but I'm just trying to give good news. I mean, maybe maybe we want to let freedom reign a little bit, but the problem is, there's still greed and there's still theft and there's still fraud, and there's still some people who try to exploit and take advantage of other people, and people lose, and And the free market is not so free like in the labor market. It's not like people in Michigan can move to Georgia to work at a new manufacturing That's hard, you know, it's hard hard for workers to migrate where the labor market is, there's such a thing as displacement and the economy is moving so fast and it's becoming more and more knowledge based and skills that work this year won't work next year and, and its life is very, very uncertain and a society does need to organize itself to sort of smooth out those displacements and transitions and and people do fall between the cracks and that's a reality that we cannot pretend is not there. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Dot dot dot. And they must always be prioritized by you. If you've been around Blue Water for any length of time, you you already know that, and we make a big deal about that. I mean, social justice is an incredibly important facet of the kingdom of God. The poor, the marginalized, the, 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 the outcast, the alien, these are people that we think about first, and we try to prioritize in the way that things work, uh, because uh, that's where love needs to manifest most, and we're very clear about that. But but do we need to scratch and claw and be afraid and take control? That's my question. And I think since that's the question that dominates political culture, that's the question that needs to dominate our discussion uh, as well. Um, I like, uh, I mean, there's so many scriptures about caring for the poor and, and so many scriptures about economic culture in both the Old and the New Testament. I mean, they're everywhere. Like I, I think I mentioned last week, there's somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 verses on care for the poor and handling wealth in the Bible, depending on how you count them. Uh, by my count, there might even be more than that. But of all of those, I just, I just picked a chunk from Leviticus chapter 19. It's uh, part of what's called the Holiness Code, which was sort of God's, like, it's big, his big culture-building scripture essay in the Old Testament. And, and it has a, a bit to do with economic culture and, and just the way that the Lord sees it and some things that he was encouraging in a people that he was trying to disciple up, to be mature and helpful people on the earth, to be a light to the world. And, and this is some instruction that he gave his people from Leviticus chapter 19. This is an agricultural society, right? Uh, they, they rise and fall on their crops. He said to them, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the alien. I am the Lord your God. So the idea was you're going to harvest your field. If you had a successful harvest, you're going to harvest your field. But you're not going to harvest the edges of your field. You're just going to leave them for public consumption, for people who really need it. Uh, so that's what gleanings are. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and profane the name of your, of, uh, your God. In other words, honest contracts. Do not uh, defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Honor the working guy. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. Make a way for disabled people. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. <laughs> Truth, right down the middle. Uh, but judge your neighbor fairly or honestly. Some translations will say, you know, I, I, it's just... You know, it's just so decent. You know, like, the Lord designed an economic culture. It's just like, you know, be decent. Be decent. Wasn't that a slogan from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Be decent to one another? Was that it? Totally dating myself? Be excellent to one another. That's it, yeah. Same, same, same. Jesus, Bill and Ted. Keanu Reeves, anyone? No? Uh, if you are successful, you should share mindfully. It was the culture that, that the Lord uh, uh, wanted his people to, uh, to follow. There are tons of scriptures encouraging people to work hard, to be honest, and to be generous, and to provide for the poor in a way that gave the poor dignity. You know, just leave a little uh, and let them go to work. You know, ma- make a way for the poor to work for themselves. It's just kind of this sort of ingenious. Uh, there was also this big overarching jubilee system. Uh, it was called, uh, God says to his people, you shall make the 50th year holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you and each of you will return to his own property and each of you shall return to his own family or tribe. Uh, in the jubilee year, you shall not sow or reap, uh, but just uh, just live off of what you have saved uh you shall eat of the increase of the field in the year of jubilee each of you shall return to his property every 50th year or 49th year depending on how you do the math Um, in ancient israel all debts were supposed to be forgiven all land was supposed to be returned to the original people who owned it and you're just kind of to reboot and start over and the idea is that god would provide for you so well through the previous years, that you just be able to kind of live on your savings for that. Everybody gets a vacation every fiftieth, every fifty years, every seventh year you were supposed to take a year off as well. But the fiftieth was the big one. Uh, how, how does that system sound to you? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like today, something like that might be a little impractical. We don't really have fields anymore. Uh, many of us, but here's what it did: it taught you that life is not scarce. It taught you that you didn't have to secure your own future or take control. It said, you know, every so often, just kind of level the field and, you know, let a season pass, let a new one begin. I mean, just kind of imagine living like that. The Israelites couldn't imagine living like that. Not once, history shows, did they actually do this. Um, they didn't have the guts. They bought into the lie. Um, but I like it. You know, I like what the Lord. I like the culture that the Lord was trying to build. Don't scratch and claw. Don't be afraid. Don't take control. Every once in a while, give up control and see what that gets you. Um, you know, in part, uh, I, I, I distrust. Uh, I distrust big government because I'm a historian. <laughs> because my PhD was in political science, and I know what collectivism and you know, socialist and dictatorial governments do. Um, Historically, it's not been good. Uh, I'll put it that way. But I I might also distrust controlled, regulated, dictatorial economies uh, because of my Christian conditioning to empower individuals to be fully individual and to be fully human. You know, what, what I want, if left to my druthers, is a culture of virtuous people who are hardworking, fearless, and generous instead of raising up a generous uh, a generation of people who think, whose version of generosity is um, to be outraged unless government is generous. You see the difference? I want to raise up a people who are generous, who share their homes, uh, who share their money, uh, who create jobs uh, with workers in mind, uh, who try to lift, you know, the whole tide, as opposed to just looking at government to be, you know, the arbiter of, of social justice and, and 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 letting government do do all the work, I, I think there's a way in in which that stunts us. You know, I, I don't I don't trust government, but what I want to what I really want to do is just to trust people, right? Because if you trust people and if you require a lot of them, as the Lord did, then they develop. You know, and and if you want to develop people, if you want to raise up, uh, a. a a generous people, then one of the things that you have to teach them is to not be afraid, is to not scratch and claw. One of the things you have to teach them is that life isn't scarce, that there's a way for you, and that God will provide, and that you can do it, and you can find it. And if you believe in a world that's not scarce, you tend to be a a person who doesn't get stuck, who doesn't lose their sense of purpose because things aren't working out economically. Instead, you think, well, you know, this has been a tough year for me, but I think there's a way forward. And I think God is more than capable enough of opening that way forward for me. It's a shift in mindset, right? And I think it's a healthy shift in mindset. And this isn't a black and white thing, but what I distrust in our current economic culture is that the dominant forces are telling us that... um, you know government needs to secure our future and take control and that's really how these things are managed that that that's really how society takes care of itself and and, and i think that's a poorer mindset in general a poorer mindset you know I'm not against every government program and stuff like that but there's a culture that goes with it that i'm against are you following me i mean to be subtle about this so be careful how you quote me on facebook please I, uh, I don't need any more hate mail. Uh, I've taken to not reading it uh, generally. Um, so, you know, don't let Big Brother be your solution to justice or economic security. I encourage you not to do that. Uh, don't, don't, just, don't just play politics. Don't just support this candidate or that candidate when what you really need to do is to be fearless and to work hard and be generous which I think is, is the God uh, agenda for, for you. Let's just end by asking ourselves, you know, have, have you bought into the scarcity culture? I don't care what your political views are, you know, but, but have you bought into the scarcity culture? Have you bought into to the cultural lie that tells you scratch and claw and be afraid and dang it somebody has to take control and if you've bought into that i think you're a poorer person i don't know if you're poor financially but i think you may be a poorer person if you know what i mean i think you may be shortchanging god in your own development and that would be a great tragedy and more than anything else i wonder if the way you view the world economically has stunted you spiritually Like I said at the outset, sometimes if you feel that economics are hopeless, then it's easy for you to also feel that life is hopeless or that you don't have purpose generally. And I wonder if you've been touched by that in a bad way. I wonder if you have felt economically hopeless, economically screwed over, and that has robbed you of your spiritual vitality Uh, if that has happened to us, Lord, I pray that you would uh, address it this morning, and and you know, I know what the spirit of poverty feels like. I know what that spirit feels like. i want I want to know more what the spirit of freedom feels like, and what the spirit of of plenty and abundance feels like. I bless you, brothers and sisters, with a spirit of abundance. No matter what your current economic situation is, no matter what your view on the economy in general is, I bless you with a spirit of abundance, because that's how it works in the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, you can feed a crowd of thousands with five loaves and a couple of fish. In the kingdom of God, whatever you have is always enough somehow. And that's a supernatural abundance. And that must mark us as a people. It must. Or we've given away the game. We've bought in uh, to a plot meant to defeat us. on the Christian calendar. This is a day of deliverance. This is a day of Jesus entering Jerusalem. This is a day of historical change. Uh, And if you're like, you know, I've been playing into the spirit of poverty and I just want to embrace the spirit of abundance. I'll just ask you to stand up and we'll just end that way. Go ahead and open your arms really wide, not a little bit because, you know, things aren't scarce, they're abundant. Fight, man. It's a fight because the world seems scarce oftentimes. What is it, Lord? It's Psalm 90. I will open wide my mouth and the Lord will fill it. The Lord says, Open wide and I will fill you up. I will fill you up. I pray, Lord, that we would be open wide uh, for you in our lives, our arms would be wide, and that you would fill our lives with, uh, with stuff to share. Uh, we pray, Lord, for our, uh, anointing on our community of generosity, and that we would be a light to the world, uh, that uh, in this house, there would always be enough and more to share. Let your mind change, let your mindset change. Let it happen. It is fundamental to the human experience. Let it happen. He's an abundant God, man is he clever. Do not let yourself get stripped down and beat up. Need to chase. You don't need to chase after it. There are the sparrows of the air, the lilies of the field. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He has not forgotten. He has not forgotten. He is clever. In Jesus' name, Amen. Bless you. Give somebody a hug. Just I don't know. Just hug somebody. It's terribly inappropriate, but.